Well, good morning again, church. My name, like I mentioned earlier, is Michael Swindell. I'm the family pastor and connections director here at the South Campus. And yes, I am sitting on a chair this morning. You might be wondering why would a preacher sit on a chair? Well, if your back felt as terrible as mine did, you would sit on a chair as well. Uh, the truth is, um, it is my own fault. I, I did way too much yard work on Friday. That set the stage. I then played tennis on Saturday. And instead of stopping after it stiffened up after 10 minutes, I took Advil and kept playing. So I'm sure there's a proverb in there somewhere that I did not obey. So y'all pray for me to have greater wisdom in the days ahead. Amen? Okay. Uh, so if you are on the far left-hand side of your row or you are the further... Uh, the furthermost left person on your row, go ahead and grab that black notebook that is under that chair. Uh, fill it out, pass it along to the right. We would love the opportunity to pray for you, get connected uh, to you in some way. If you have any questions about the church or you're new here, you're trying to get connected, we'd love to, we'd love to be available for you, but we need to know that you're here. So go ahead and fill that out for us. If you need prayer after the service for any reason whatsoever, we have elders who are going to be stationed over here in the starting point cove area, I will call it. Um, these great little seats over here, they'd love to pray with you. Um, and then also, you may have noticed as you walked in that there is a big black divider in the foyer. And over it is a sign that says, let's raise them up. Two nice little trees to the side. What is that? That is our let's raise them up campaign for our Bethel Kids Ministries. And each one of those mini posters that you see on the big black divider, those are telling us what rooms are going to be open this fall and which rooms are going to be closed. So if the people for that room are not colored in, that means it's closed until we actually get uh, the recruits to do that. Uh, so what we're going to have is we're going to have two teachers, we're going to have one sub per room this fall. If we're not able to get all of those, then that room will remain closed until we can get somebody to step up. So this hopefully is going to be a win-win-win for everybody um, in our church that we can just say clearly, hey, here's the need, church. We need you to step up. Uh, we looked at last week, Psalm 145. One generation will declare your works to the next. This is your opportunity to declare the works of the Lord to the next generation. So if you're not serving or you haven't served in a while or maybe you've never even thought about it, can I just encourage you? It's not for the kids people, okay? It's for the all people. It's for the church people. So if you're not serving, please talk to one of our directors, Sharissa or Jessica, or talk to Cameron back there. Really just talk to anybody in any form of leadership. I'm sure they would be happy to tell you how you can get connected this morning. Okay, um, enough with that. Let's get into the scripture this morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 16. Psalm 16. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you can just basically open it up to the middle. You're in the Psalms. Look for chapter 16. We're in a series on Psalms. We looked at 145 last week. And if you want to think ahead for next week, we're going to be in Psalm 19. The week after that, we will be in Psalm 67. We're going to be using the CSB translation, the Christian Standard Bible. If you want to ask me why we're using that, I will tell you why later. But basically, it's my favorite, and Ross said I could, so I'm doing it. Um, we're also going to be looking in Acts chapter 2 today. So if you want to make a bookmark in Acts chapter 2, you can go ahead and do that. We will be hitting that up towards the end of the message. Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is a psalm of King David that shows us the emotional journey of faith of a man who begins the psalm literally fearing for his life. And if you, if you see the psalm in its entirety, you see he moves from fearing for his life to this place of joyful rest. 
Now, we don't know why David feared for his life. If you're familiar with the life of David, you know there were many times where he was on the run or he was staring down uh, the barrel of a spear from King Saul or whatever the situation was. We don't know exactly what it is here. Um, All we know is that he began the psalm as a fearful follower of the Lord, and he ends it um, as one who is fully, peacefully, joyfully assured that he would be okay. So in Psalm 16, we witness what I'm calling the emotional journey of David. But in truth, it is an emotional journey that all who would follow the Lord are going to traverse many times in our life of following him. We witness how a person can move from fear of circumstances into joyful rest in the assurance of God's character and purposes for their life. So I believe there's at least two core reasons. When you read a passage of Scripture, you have to ask the question, why did God put this passage in the Scripture? There's at least two reasons. One I just mentioned. Psalm 16 is an image of all the ways that we follow the Lord. It's our emotional journey as well. If there's emotions in here that you will say, yeah, I've experienced that in my own journey of following the Lord. So that's one reason. The second reason is because there's a truth in here that I hope that God makes clear to us as we go through it. The truth is this. God blesses those who take refuge in Him. So if you're a note taker and you like main points, there you go. God blesses those who take refuge in Him. The way I'm going to set up this message today is going to be fourfold. Most of our time, we're just going to be walking through Psalm 16, verses 1 through 9. We'll stop there. We're going to look at David's emotional journey. Okay, we're going to see where he starts. We're going to see three breakthroughs along the way. Then, we're just going to quickly notice, well, how does God bless David along this emotional journey of faith? Third, uh, we're going to see how Peter at Pentecost quotes Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, and how Jesus actually fulfills this psalm. And then lastly, and very quickly at the end, we're going to look at six implications of Psalm 16 for us today. What's the brass tacks? What do we do with it? This is what God said. How do we then respond? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, I am going to now read the passage, pray, and we'll get into it. And as I pray, uh, some of you know this, some of you don't. Our high schoolers um, who are going to camp have left for camp this morning. They're going to SS Park, Colorado uh, to spend a week, hopefully, Um, having a great time in Colorado, but more importantly, getting transformed by the love of Jesus, hopefully uniting and connecting um, uh, and unifying as one. So I'm going to pray for them as well as we pray. So let's read Psalm 16. Let's pray. Let's get into it. Here's what it says. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another god for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me, and your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that it is true. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's not going away. And so, God, we pray that you would use it now to transform and mold your people to the glory of your name. We also pray for our high school students and our leaders who are on uh, the trail to Colorado this morning. I pray that you would bless them, that you would bring unity, um, that you'd bring fun moments, that you'd bring inside jokes, and that you'd bring just these wonderful breakthrough experiences that we all long for uh, when we go to camp. God, would you do that this week? Would you do something this week you couldn't do last week and you won't do next week? And God, I pray that they would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying to them. God, of course, we pray for safety, that you would guard them in every way, there and back. We pray in Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. All right, we're going to start in verse 1. It's the beginning. It's a very good place to start. Um, And the first three words set the context for the entire psalm. First three words. What does it say? Protect me, God. Protect me, God. Okay, well, how does that set the context? Because the rest of the psalm, again, it's this emotional journey of a man who is fearing for his life. He's afraid. He's in need of protection. And I think it's important for us to note that this isn't some weak prayer for traveling mercies, like I almost just prayed for the high school. No, this is one of those things where you look up at God and it goes something like this. Help! God, I might die if you don't come through. I need you. Okay, it doesn't really come across in the English, but I promise you it's there in the Hebrew, right? No, I'm just kidding on that. How do I know that it's so serious? Well, look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7 says, I will bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. So whatever the exact situation was, it was one that was keeping David up at night. Have you ever had those types of situations? I know I have. Perhaps you're in an intense relational conflict and you don't know how it's going to end. With your spouse or a significant other or somebody in your family, you have no idea how it's going to happen. It's keeping you up at night. You're anxious. You can't sleep. Perhaps you're in a job situation, and it feels like life and death. Like, my company might not be here six months from now, which means I don't know what's going to happen to me and my family. Whatever your situation is that's kept you up at night, we know this. It's not, these aren't small potatoes, right? Something serious is happening that's keeping David anxious in the night. We know it's serious as well because verse 8 uses battle imagery. There's a fight going on. Verse 8 says, I always let the Lord guide me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Well, here's what the IVP, Old Testament, Bible background commentary, that's a mouthful, says about this language. It says, a fully armed warrior would hold his weapon in his right hand and his shield in his left. The person to the right of a king would have the privilege of defending him. For a king to put someone there would be an affirmation of trust and therefore an honor. When the Lord takes up his position at someone's right hand, as here, he is in a position to offer defense with his shield. What can we conclude from that language? David's in a fight. He's in a battle. His emotional, his spiritual, his intellectual energy is engaged. He's fully ready. Something serious is happening. And we know it's the ultimate serious because in verse 10 we see something else is on David's mind. Death. When he finally reaches the breakthrough, he praises God. Why? Because he saved him from the grave. Here's what it says in verse 10. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. And so we see the prospect of death is on David's mind. This is a life or death deal, whatever it is. It was a battle that was keeping him up at night, and it was a battle which he could only look to the Lord for refuge. So David cries out to God in fear. Help! 
But he bases this request on something that I think many of us in this room are afraid to base our requests on. How, what does he base it on? For, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. He bases his request upon his own faithfulness in following Yahweh, his own taking refuge in him. In other words, because I'm faithfully taking refuge in you, protect me. Hey, I'm one of the good guys. I'm one of yours. Like, defend me. I'm taking refuge in you. I need you to come through. Now, we are good New Testament Christians, right? We believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's all Him. It's none of us. Amen? So is this some sort of Old Testament, weird, works-based righteousness? David is somehow earning his salvation by the way he lives? Absolutely not. No, here's what I think is going on. I think David knows that as someone who is already chosen, already anointed, already a true worshiper of the one true God, that on some level he is, catch this word, entitled to the Lord's blessings. Yes, I said it, entitled to the Lord's blessings. Like a true son is, by rights, entitled to his father's blessings. Okay? In other words, I believe David knows the truth that we see in the passage. David knows that God blesses those who take refuge in him. So in verses 2 through 4, he begins to show the Lord, remind the Lord, as if the Lord could be reminded, here's how I'm taking refuge in you. In verse 2, if you look back in your Bibles with me, in verse 2, it is a declaration of trust in the God who gives, who gives David all good things. You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. You are the capital G gift from which all little g gifts flow from. I don't have a gift except but by you. So without you, God, there would be no gift in my life. You're all I got. You're the greatest good and you're every good. Verse 3 is proof that David delights in God, and he says it in an interesting way, probably in a way that we wouldn't think of. What does he say? God, I, with you, you're my only good. Let me prove it to you. I delight in those who delight in you. The noble ones. That's where my delight is. I love the people of God. Can I just say something, church? If you love God, you'll love the people of God, no matter how annoying they are, no matter how hypocritical we may be, right? If you love God, you'll love his people. If you love Jesus, you'll love his bride. He says, Yahweh, here's how, here's how I know that I'm faithful to you. I'm faithful to your people. I love your people. That's where my delight is, the faithful remnant in the land. And then verse 4 is the opposite of verse 3. David takes no delight in those who would reject his Lord and choose instead to offer blood offerings to pagan deities. So by his public speech and by his public associations, David is reminding the Lord that he takes refuge in God alone. So you could sum up verses 1 through 4 like this. God, protect me because I take faithful refuge in you. Here's how I take refuge in you. I declare that you are the greatest good in my life, from which all good things arise. I love your people. I take no delight in those who reject you. And even here early in the psalm, I want you to catch emotional shift happening. Even here early in the psalm, verse 1, Help, I'm gonna die. I'm afraid I don't know what's gonna happen. By verse 4, where did the fear go? It's receding to the background. As he declares to God, I'm taking refuge in him, something happens in the mystery of prayer where fear is beginning to move off the stage. And then we see in verse 5 and 6 what I will call the first emotional breakthrough. 
in David's journey of faith. The first emotional breakthrough is this. A thankful perspective. A thankful perspective. In the midst of prayer, something clicks in David's mind. And with this click, his eyes are opened again to the reality of, catch this, I want you to catch this phrase, the already present goodness of God in his life. I want you to catch that. As he is praying, something clicks. And his eyes become opened again to the already present goodness of God in his life. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold currently my future. This is all present tense. Not, it's going to happen. You are going to bless me right now in the battle. The boundary lines have fallen for me right now in pleasant places, in pleasureful lands. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Do you see how fear is beginning to recede in the emotional journey? And a thankful perspective is starting to move front and center. The Holy Spirit does something in David's heart as he prays. He does something in his heart and his mind that creates a shift. It's a breakthrough in the psalm. David once again notices, he once again focuses on the already present goodness of God in his life. All of a sudden, he begins to remember who God already is for him. God isn't going to be his portion at the end of the battle. God is his portion right now. God is currently his sustenance in life. God is David's cup of blessing. That is his container of all the good experiences that God will pour out and David will drink of in his life. God is the holder of David's future. That is David, or God is David's sovereign and all-powerful king who goes before him in battle and prepares the way. Indeed, David remembers that the sovereign allotment that he has been given in life is pleasant. His inheritance, not his earthly father's inheritance, which maybe there was nothing of. Remember, he was like the seventh born son. But an inheritance from his heavenly father is good. Indeed, it is beautiful. And as David reflects upon the already present reality of God's goodness in life, it leads him to the only possible response in verse 7. He blesses the Lord. He blesses the Lord. Well, that looks familiar, doesn't it? Last week in Psalm 145, we talked about what it, what it meant to bless the Lord, for He is great. Here's what it means to bless the Lord. It means to see His work, praise Him for it, thank Him for it, and delight in it all at one time. It's an eruption of praise, an eruption of gratitude, an eruption of joy, and you can see, you can see the emotion shifting. Can you feel that? Help me, God. I don't know what's going to happen to man. God's been good to me. And so he blesses the Lord. Specifically, he blesses the Lord, his counselor at night, when all seems lost and he's too anxious to sleep. I was listening to a sermon this week on Psalm 16 in preparation uh, by a pastor named Alistair Begg. If you don't know that Scottish brother, I would encourage you to listen to him. He says this, God doesn't have an answering machine. Isn't that good? God doesn't have an answering machine. You're up at night, so is God. You're up in the wee hours of the morning, so is God. He'll counsel you in the middle of the night. You see, some of us in this room have counselors, don't we? Some of us are counselors in this room. Here's the deal. Counselors aren't always available, are they? No. And I'll, probably not in the middle of the night. Right? And even when they are available, sometimes, not often, sometimes, they get it wrong, don't they? They give us bad advice. Why? They're human, right? 
They're not the Lord. They're not this perfect, all-knowing, all-wise God. But God isn't like that. He's always available. He's always available. His word is at the ready. His spirit is within us and waiting. The combination of his fatherly affection and wisdom is never on airplane mode at night. He's always ready. He's always there to jump to our aid. And when he counsels us, it is always perfect. His counsel always leads us, verse 11 says, in the path of life. And so the first breakthrough we see, the first emotional transition that we see is a thankful perspective. And then in verse 8, right after verse 7, so the breakthroughs go 7, 8, 9. 7, thankful perspective. 8, we see another breakthrough. Verse 8 says, I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. And it almost as if he's like pounding his fist. I will not be shaken. Breakthrough number two is a fierce resolve. Thankful perspective, boom. Fierce resolve comes right on the heels of it. And more than observing this, I hope you are feeling the emotion as I'm preaching. It's, I am terrified of my life. So by the end of verse eight, it is, uh uh-uh, uh-uh. This is in my favor. I am resolved. I am taking refuge in the Lord. He is good. This will turn out for my end. The fierce resolve shows up. See, this is the part in the movie, you know, where the commander, the good commander, gets this, like, gleam in his eye. He's like, oh, yeah, we're going to win this thing. Like, all seems lost, and all of a sudden he gets this twinkle. Somehow he gets some information from the field that he's like, oh, yeah, it's going to work. It's going to work. We're going to do this. We're going to win. And you can't think of, like, that without thinking of, like, different movie scenes and Recently, my wife and I, we've been watching a lot of movies. We don't typically do this, but we have become the newest members of the Star Wars fan club. Um, Any Star Wars fans out there? Now, keep your hand raised if you're still a fan of the Disney version of Star Wars. Because I know that's a sensitive topic among you Padawans out there. So, in episode 8, I guess you could call it, The Last Jedi. uh, By the way, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen The Last Jedi, sorry, it's been like a couple years. You should have seen it by now. Okay. In The Last Jedi, the Jedi hero, Luke Skywalker, avoids re-engaging in the Resistance against the evil First Order and against his former and fallen protege, Kylo Ren. He refuses to train Rey, a young woman with Jedi talent but no master. He refuses to even see his sister, General Leia, who leads the rebel cause. But in a sudden reversal at the end of the movie, Luke shows up like a boss out of nowhere to face Kylo Ren in battle when all seems lost. And in the fight scene that ensues, he is completely calm and focused. And then near the climax of the scene, Kylo Ren says this. And I was going to show up, but I think it's a little too intense. He says this. This is Kylo Ren talking to Luke Skywalker. The resistance is dead. The war is over. And when I kill you, I will have killed the last Jedi. To which, with a fierce resolve, Luke Skywalker says this. Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. The rebellion is reborn today. You can hear the music, right? The war is just beginning, and I will not be the last Jedi. Then it goes to Rey, holding all the stones. Okay. Now, how does Luke have such confidence? Because he has a type of spiritual information that assures him of victory. In the fictional world of Star Wars... That information comes via the Force. The Force is with him. He knows that stalling and fighting Kylo Kylo Ren will enable the Resistance forces to leave on the Millennium Falcon. Okay? How does David have such a firm resolve in Psalm 16? 
Where does this twinkle in his eye come from, this assurance? It comes from remembering that the Lord is a warrior. In fact, he is the undefeated king, warrior of the earth. We see this in the Exodus, don't we? Most powerful empire of the day, Exodus. Yahweh, the Lord, brings them to their knees and destroys them in the Red Sea. Here's what, uh, here's what we read in Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Moses, after they get through the Red Sea, um, he declares this in singing. This is how he describes the Lord. It says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. When David remembers that the battle is the Lord's and that the Lord is with him, he experiences a breakthrough of fierce resolve. Can I tell you, church, if you are the Lord's people, every battle is the Lord's. He is undefeated. He is the warrior king of the world. There is not a battle that you can face that he cannot redeem. Can I get an amen? Am I preaching this morning? Wake up, church. We have a warrior king, God, on our side. He is at our right hand. We will not be shaken. That is where the fierce resolve comes from. It doesn't come from the circumstance. It doesn't come in our own ability to fight. David, of all people, knew how to fight. They sang songs about him in Israel. Saul killed thousands. David killed tens of thousands. Basically, don't mess with David. You know what David says? Nope, it's not me. Don't mess with my Lord. He's at my right hand. I won't be shaken. So he's a fierce resolve. That's not the final breakthrough. We're getting close. Final breakthrough happens in the next verse. Verse 9. Here's the last breakthrough in his emotional journey. Verse 9 says this, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. The third breakthrough is joyful rest. It's joyful rest. You have a thankful perspective that moves us to a fierce resolve, that moves us to a joyful rest. When David recognizes that God is at his right hand, that God will counsel him along the path of life, that God has not left him, he has not forsaken him, only then does he enter into the emotional realm of joyful rest. He's not up all night anymore. He's sleeping again. You can feel that, right? Body's resting securely. He's not fearful. He can laugh at his enemies with delight. He's come to the end of another emotional journey of faith. Somehow, in the mystery of the Holy Spirit ministering to David's heart through prayer, David came to the full assurance he was not going to die. More than that, he came to see that even in the face of death, there are pleasures evermore at God's right hand. As we'll see in a moment, he actually saw beyond his own life. He saw hundreds and hundreds of years later. And so we see this emotional journey of faith, this witness of Psalm 16. We begin with David's fear. We move to his testimony of faithfully taking refuge in the Lord. Then we encounter three emotional breakthroughs, a thankful perspective, a fierce resolve, and a joyful rest. But why? Why is this psalm in here? Well, like I mentioned earlier, it's to show us it's normal to have these emotions. It's normal to be afraid. It's normal to, to experience a fierce resolve. And it's normal to when the battle is over to enter into joyful rest. But like I also mentioned at the beginning of the message, it reveals to us the truth. God blesses those who take refuge in Him. 
And since we've already walked through most of Psalm 16, let's just highlight four of them really clearly. We've already seen seen them. Let's just make them explicit. What's the first way that God blesses those who take refuge in him? Verse 7, he counsels. He counsels those who take refuge in him. When we're anxious in the night, God is available for counsel. God counsels those who take refuge in him. Can I tell you, church, the opposite's also true? God does not counsel those who do not take refuge in him. Indeed, what does David say about them? Their sorrows multiply. Church, he is ready to counsel. You have brothers and sisters in the Lord who know this thing backwards and forwards. Call them. He blesses those who take refuge in him. How? He counsels them. And in part, one and two are connected. One of the ways he protects us, which is another way he blesses us, part of the way he protects us is by counseling us. You see, there is a path of life. His precepts do lead to more life in the world that he created. God protects us in part through his counsel. But God also protects us because the Lord is a warrior. In fact, Jesus says this. Remember the Great Commission. He's sending off to the disciples to... He knows at this point, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus knows he's sending them off to certain death. They will be martyrs. What does he say? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. How does he end it? How does he end it, church? Behold, I am with you always. I defeated death, the resurrection, and the life. Satan and his armies have been destroyed in my resurrection. I, that person, am with you always via the Holy Spirit inside of you. Take refuge in the Lord. His protection will never leave you. God protects those who take refuge in him. Third, God gives rest to those who take refuge in him. He gives rest. We see that in verse 9, don't we? David gets to the end of the journey. His body rests securely. How could you not rest securely? The Lord who is a warrior, the undefeated king of the world, is at your right hand. How could you not? If you really believe that, if you really trust that. And then with that rest, joy comes in the morning as well. Joy and rest. They, you find one in the scriptures, the other one's not far behind. God gives joy to those who take refuge in him. This is a joy that surpasses understanding. It's the joy that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1.8. He says there's this inexpressible and glorious joy that surpasses the understandings of our current circumstances. And like David, it's a joy that's built upon the foundation of knowing this. Death will not win. Death will not win. Outwardly, we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Death will not win. And that brings us back to verse 10, which is where we left off. Verse 10. You see, David knew somehow that in his situation, he was not going to see the he was not going to see the grave. He wasn't going to see decay. But he knew one day he would be buried and die. He knew that was coming. So, what does verse ten mean? We find out what verse ten means by going to Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, Peter at Pentecost is preaching the first sermon post the filling of the Holy Spirit, and he hearkens back to Psalm sixteen, specifically verses nine through eleven. Now, real quick before I read this, some of the language is a little different from what we just read. Think of it like this. It was just a different ancient translation. You don't need to worry about it. If you want to talk to me about it, you can later. But let's read what Peter says at Pentecost, starting in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God 
with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death. Ending the pains of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest, will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Verse 29. Brothers and sisters, this is Peter again preaching. I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, you know David was a prophet. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. Final verse. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. You see, David was a prophet. And somehow, in the mystery of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, David recognized that salvation from his death and his circumstance somehow was a prophecy of the indestructible nature of the coming Messiah. David knew that he would be dead and buried one day. But somehow, he also knew that because of the long-awaited Messiah, he would get to experience eternal pleasures in God's presence. Now, how much of the mystery of the gospel did David know? We don't know exactly. But we do know this. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now brings all who take refuge in Him to eternal life and eternal joy. We do know now that because Jesus was not abandoned in the grave, we won't be either. Church, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and will experience the everlasting, resurrected life of God in heaven. That is good news. Amen? That is our destiny. Death, where is your sting? It has been removed in the cross and resurrection. It is the gospel of Jesus right there in Psalm 16. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What are the implications for us as a church? We've seen this emotional journey from fear to faith, to joyful rest. We see the truth. God does bless those who take refuge in Him. We see how it's fulfilled in its ultimate form in Christ. Because it's fulfilled in Christ, we're united to Him. We receive that same blessing. What do we do with it? How do we respond? I think there's at least six ways. And I'm going to say them very quickly. So if you have your notes, we're going to look at six implications for our own emotional journey. They're right there in the text. You're already making the connection in your mind. Let's just make them explicit now. Number one, number one, we let our fear draw us into prayer. We see that in verse one, don't we? Protect me, God, I'm afraid. Somebody needs to hear this this morning. God does not scold you when you come to him fearfully in prayer. He doesn't scold you. He's not like, gosh, here's my fearful kid. It's always that one. They're always coming trembling. Don't they know? I'll protect them. He doesn't do that. He doesn't scold you. Okay? He doesn't look down on you. He remembers, Psalm 103, that we are dust. Of course we would come to him when we're afraid. 
who else can we go to? Certainly not our own strength. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. We let our fear draw us into prayer. What are you afraid of? It doesn't have to be life or death. What are you afraid of? Let it draw you into prayer. Number two, we humbly remind God of our faithfulness. Yes, we do. We humbly remind God of our faithfulness. Why? Why do we remind God? Because we, we re, in reminding Him that I am a true son and a true daughter, how do I know that? The fruit of the Spirit is evident in my life. God, I'm taking refuge in you. God, I'm reading your word. God, I'm seeking you. As we do that, guess what can't take the stage anymore? Fear. Fear backs off. And thankfulness is right on the horizon. We don't remind God for God's sake. We remind God for our sake. Because we're already children. We're entitled to the Lord's blessing. He is your Father. Number two, we humbly remind God of our faithfulness. See that in verses two through four. Number three, we thank God for the already present reality of His goodness in our lives. What is the already, re- what, what is the goodness of God in your life right now? Your lines are in pleasant places. Your boundary lines are good. They're not going to be good, they are good. It's not they have been good. Where's the Lord of the past? They are good right now. Good does not equal easy. Can I get an amen, church? Good equals good. Life is crippling hard. Amen? You can't make it without the Lord. Those who think they are are lying to themselves. Their sorrows are multiplying. But no matter how hard life is, God blesses those who take refuge in Him. He will be there for you. The darkness will pass, the light will come, a new day will dawn, and you will continue to experience that until one day the everlasting light has dawned and you will meet him face to face. We thank God for the already present reality of his goodness in our lives. Number four, we seek God's counsel. Simple question. What does the word of God say about my situation? If you don't know, talk to somebody, ask somebody. It says something. Maybe in an indirect way. Maybe not super clear. Maybe you're going to have to dig. Maybe you're going to have to take refuge and dig into this thing. You're going to have to pray. Maybe you're going to have to seek Him. There's an answer. It's coming. The Holy Spirit will illuminate it to you. We seek God's counsel. Number five, we remember the gospel. We remember the good news. Death is defeated. Christ has been raised. His promises are ours. We're already, Colossians said, seated with Him in heavenly places already we're already there spiritually speaking we have been raised our physical bodies are taking some time to play that out but we're already there church if you are in christ you are already raised we remember the gospel and then sixth and last can i encourage you we fight in prayer and faith until we arrive at the breakthrough of joyful rest if you're not at joyful rest you're not at the breakthrough it's not over yet That's the journey. That's the journey of the life of faith. We fight, we fight, we struggle, we pray, we fast, we weep, we lament. We get to this place of joyful rest. It's a a knowledge of the sovereign goodness of God. It's it's this truth that I've been meditating on for a couple years, and I just can't get over it. Are you ready for this? This is the good. This is what I go to. This This is the silver bullet. 
if I were as powerful as God is, and as loving as he is, and as wise as he is, if I saw everything that he saw, I would lead me the same way he's leading me right now. And if I don't understand it, it's because I'm not smart enough. It's not because he's not good. It's because I don't know enough. It's because he's better than I could ask for or imagine. Church, can I get an amen? It doesn't matter where you're at. He's smarter. He's better. One day from heaven, you'll see clearly. It's dimly now. It's dimly now. One day it won't be. That's the fight of faith. If you're not to joyful rest, keep fighting until you get there. You'll get there. So, Psalm 16. It's this emotional journey. We move from fear, we move to joyful rest. Tells us the truth. What's the truth? God blesses those who take refuge in Him. God counsels, protects, gives rest to, gladdens the heart, and resurrects to everlasting life those who take refuge in Him. We see it most clearly in the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And because we see it fulfilled in Christ, we too can have joyful assurance that our ultimate reward for taking refuge in God will be eternal pleasures at His right hand. Church, what are you fighting today? Where are you afraid today? Where are you in the journey of faith? God is with you. God's working in you to work for His purposes. It's for your good. It's for your eternal good. You don't see it yet, and that's okay. Nobody really sees it yet. Can I encourage you? Keep fighting. Take refuge in the Lord. He's there with you. Would you pray with me? Father, you know each and every one of our hearts. You know the battle. You know it better than we know it ourselves.